The following recording is part of a six-week series entitled Rooted, a study through the Book of Colossians at Holy Cross Church. Paul says here, right at the get-go, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ. And he just got done, if you were here last week or familiar with this letter, and I'll give you a quick background, he just got done saying, here is what is true. Here is true teaching, here is true doctrine, here is true Christian teaching. If you believe in these things, if you trust in them, and if you put your faith solely in Christ, then these are things that will, these are symptoms of that kind of belief. So before we dig into this and kind of talk about this, how do we live a godly life without missing the gospel? Here's something I want to lay out on the table first, is that we are all guilty of these things. We are guilty. We look at this list, and as you start reading through these things, you might start saying, that's not me. Okay, I'm doing really well. You start with verse 5, and you may be saying to yourself, I'm doing really well, pretty good so far. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have idols. I mean, I believe in God. There's not sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness. I'm very content. But then he goes into verse 8 and says, there's anger and wrath and malice and slander. And then you're thinking, okay, well, those are kind of still kind of extreme words. And then if there's any doubt left, he says, any obscene talk from your mouth. I mean, he covers us all in this. No one is exempt. We're all in this, in this bucket together. Any obscene talk, I mean, who of us are, at least in that one, not exempt? Anything that comes from your mouth that is, that is dirty, that's profane, that's off, that is not honoring to the character and nature of Christ, those are the things he's talking about. And so, okay, maybe you see this list and you start to rate them and you say, I don't have the big ones, but guess what? This talk tonight is for every single one of us, including myself where no one is exempt. And so, I wanted to lay that on the table first. So we see from the get-go this tension, and we embrace this tension in the passage. Paul says, and in one place he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, yet God is coming to punish those who practice such behaviors. We know that as God's true people, there's guaranteed deliverance from God's wrath, from His anger, but at the same time, repeatedly in Scripture, Christians, people who believe in Jesus, are warned that persistent sinful behavior will bring about God's justice and His wrath. We see just in last week that it says Christ disarmed our sin and nailed it to the cross, and yet he says in this passage, put these sins to to death. Do you see the tension here? This is what Paul is saying. Sin has been dealt with in your life. So don't sin anymore. Seriously? Isn't that weird? I mean, isn't that a bizarre sentence? You don't have to worry about sin in your life anymore. Jesus took care of it. Since that's true, don't sin anymore. Deal with your sin. Put it to death. So it seems like it's been taken care of, but it's still very present in our life. We have Christians in this room. You still sin, correct? Why? Why, if, if you believe that Christ has this disarmed sin... Do you continue to sin? That's the tension that we need to wrestle with. So, understanding that tension, here's what we don't want to do. Here's one thing we don't want to do as we encounter this passage. We don't want to excuse our sin as Christians. Saying, Jesus died for me and I'm a work in process and he understands where I am in my life. 
Therefore, he knows that these sins, I'm, I'm, I'm just increasingly dealing with in my life. And so God will excuse me because I'm a work in progress. That was me for many years. God knows that I am a wretched person and I have so much sin in my life and he'll excuse me because he loves me and he knows that I, I can't be perfect and so I'm, I'm a work in progress. Let's not do that. I don't want to do that. The next thing we, we don't want to do is we don't want to ignore sin. We don't want to bury it. We don't want to pretend that it's not in our lives. We want to come out front just like Paul comes out front. We want to address it head on. This is what sin is. This is what it's called and we need to put it to death. And lastly, this is what I don't want to do. I don't want to miss the gospel in all this. I don't want to give you a to-do list. I don't want to give you a top ten list of things that you need to rid of your life. I don't want you to leave out this door and say, okay, to be a Christian, here are the things I need to do and here are the things I don't want to do. Because if that's the case, then you've missed the gospel. You've put your trust in behaving a certain way for God's love. But the gospel is that we are loved in spite of those things. But yet Paul spends so much time talking about behavior. So it's important. Our behavior is important. The gospel says you're loved in spite of these things. How do we have this perspective? And here's what we're going to do. In the bulletin, you have a little follow-along, some talk notes, some things you can follow along. We're going to put some things on the screen that you can kind of follow along here. This is going to be four quick and easy, nice things that we can look at. That a mindset that we can have to pursue godliness without missing the gospel. Fair enough? Let's do that. The first one is understanding that Christian behavior does not make you Christian. We talked about that just a little bit. Christian behavior does not make you Christian. Paul says again, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. You can be a terrific person. You can be a fun person to be around. You can be the life of the party. You can be a very kind, moral person. And it could have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus, he talks about this in Matthew. He says that people will come to him at judgment day and said, look at all the things that we did. Look at our behavior. All the great things that we did. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Christian behavior does not make you Christian. The design of this warning from Paul is is to encourage God's people to seriously engage in the process of ridding themselves of attitudes and lifestyles that are opposed to God's nature and his character. And so Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, he's referring to a transformation of the heart. Because here is what, here's what normal religion tells you. Behavior makes you Christian. Behavior makes you love God more. The gospel is the love of God changes your behavior. And that's why Paul says, if your identity is in the love of God, here are natural symptoms that will flow from that reality, from that identity. He says, you were once dead. He's talking about a heart condition. He says that Christ made you alive through the Holy Spirit, made you alive. And he uses an analogy of a real-life thing of circumcision, that you take a boy, a young boy, and you take off a piece of his flesh and you cut it out. And there's blood and there's removal of this piece of skin and it's gruesome and it's violent and you throw it away. And what Paul is saying is that is the kind of thing that needs to happen to your heart. Where you have this 
You have this shell, you have this veil, you have this hardened part of your, your heart. And Christ must rip that out and make your heart alive and soft so it could respond to Him. So Christian behavior doesn't make you Christian. What makes you Christian is the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit in your heart, making you alive when you were once dead. So when we learn about pursuing holiness in our lives, we do so with the understanding that holiness is never the means of God's love, but it is always the symptom. Holiness, godliness, a life pleasing to God in your behavior and lifestyle, Paul says, is a natural symptom of the love of God in your life. If then, and here's the warning, if then, You persist in sinful behavior. It is evidence that your heart has not been changed by God. This is a change of perspective, isn't it? How we pursue life and how we pursue godly living and, and holiness, godliness, things like that. It's a different kind of mindset of how we go about making decisions, isn't it? Saying, I'm not going to, it's it's going from this point of I'm not going to commit sin so that I could be where Christ is. Right? Don't we think like that sometimes? I know I've done that. I'm not going to sin so that Christ will love me and I could go to heaven and things like that. I'm not going to do these things so that I can have Christ in my life. Going from that, which I know a lot of us can be at times, to this. I'm not going to commit these sins because I am already where Christ is. And that's the language Paul uses. Since you've been raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, since your identity is with Christ in heaven already, If you are a Christian and trust in Christ, you have an identity that is in heaven already. And yet here you are on earth. And because your identity is in heaven with Christ, therefore, rid yourself of these kinds of things. Set your mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things. And do you see the difference there? Let's look at another one, the second thing. To have... To pursue godliness without missing the gospel is to use the weapons of the gospel to resist sin. I'm going to give you an example of of what weapons we might use. Now, plain terms, this is what that looks like. Okay, there's sin in your life. How do you go about resisting sin, right? That's what I'm talking about. What are some things that you might use to resist sin? Um, I'm going to give a couple examples, one for guys, one for girls. And really, these are not meant to be exclusive just to guys and just to girls. I understand there's a tremendous amount of overlap in the two different scenarios. Um, But but here it is. Um, For guys, how do we go about resisting sin of, of lust, of sexual immorality, of temptation, things like that? Often we replace it with another sin, don't we? We put it aside, we we control it, we ignore it, and we get a new sin that we call self-righteousness. And so we say, we kind of have this checklist of things that we did or did not do for that day. And we have this track record of, look how long I've been able to abstain from these things, and look how good I have done. And then we look at people who are, not, or who are struggling in that, and, they, and when we say, I'm not doing those things, and look how self-righteous I have become. And we've just managed that, that lust. And then, let's say a day comes by, and we lust after a woman, and then we feel guilty because all that hard work of resisting that sin is now washed away and we've got to start all over again. So we took two sins of lust and sexual immorality and we replaced it with another sin of self-righteousness. And those are some weapons that we can use to combat sin 
that is not effective. Here's another one maybe for girls. And this could be for both guys and girls. A couple sins of, of fear and anxiety. And we replace those sins with control. And so we say, I don't want to... I don't want to be anxious and afraid. I don't want to doubt. I don't want to be tempted in those ways. And so I'm going to take my life and control everything in it. Making sure that everything goes the way that I desire it for it to go. And so that way I can control my sin of anxiety and fear and, and doubt. And what we've done is just merely replaced two sins with just another sin. And the heart has not changed. We resist sins a lot of times by just replacing it with other sins. And I use the word weapon, using the weapons of the gospel to resist sin, because that's the language that Paul uses. It's a language of war. In Romans 7, Paul, you may be familiar with this passage in, in verse 18, he says, I desire to do the things that, I, that are right. I desire The things I desire to do, I can't do. And the things that I hate doing, I keep doing. So he's saying, all the things I want to do to honor Christ, I don't do. And the things I want to resist... Why is it that those are the things that I keep doing? Anybody here feel that way? I want to love God and do th- good, the right things, and I keep missing the boat. And the things that I hate that I know are really bad for me, those are the things that I'm actually very good at. Paul is saying those are the things that are true for me. He says, I see the law waging war against my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. He says, what a wretched man that I am. And then he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul is being one of two things. He's either being very dramatic. (laughs) Oh, Paul. He's sitting there like, who will rescue me from this body of death? Come on, Paul. Is it really that bad? I mean, drama queen, anybody. Or something else is going on. He recognizes, truthfully, the war that is raging inside of his life. Who will save me from this body of death? He is seeing his struggle between sin and godliness the right way. It is nothing less than a war. And he finds himself hopeless, taken captive by sin, finds himself behind enemy lines. He says, the law of sin has done its job. It's made me feel completely hopeless. The law is meant to make you feel completely hopeless. A checklist of do's and don'ts are meant to make you feel completely hopeless. That's its job. Its its job is to make you feel like a loser. It is designed to say, see, now you have a list and you failed. Now what are you going to do? And that's where Jesus comes in. The law of God is meant to lead us to a savior. All of us are guilty by the law of sin. It's a curse. We've all messed up. We have all fallen short of what God requires. And Paul says it's, it's a war. So what is the weapon? What is the right weapon to use to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness without missing the gospel? Paul talks about it here. In verse 16 he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We should talk about the word of Christ. We should talk about what God is doing. We should talk about the scriptures and talk about them out loud with each other. They should be the content of our, of our conversations regularly. Now, they don't have to be the content of our conversations in everything, but they should be prominent in our life. Because these are weapons. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. This is a weapon that we use to resist sin. And we, if we do not ha- know how to wield that weapon and use it well, we will just be clumsy with it. 
I mean, think of a weapon, a gun or a knife or a sword that you just don't know how to use. It'll be very ineffective to resisting sin. And that's why Paul says, let it dwell in your hearts deeply. And I commend that to you and I encourage and exhort you in that. Get in God's word. Become familiar with it. If you, are, if you don't get a lot of things, team up with somebody who you love and trust and talk about God's word and say, what does this mean? What is this guy talking about? This is bizarre. What's going on? Have those conversations because it is a weapon that you and I need. He says in verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our protection from sin is Christ himself. The blood of Christ is a spiritual weapon against sin. How am I going to resist this sin? You can say the blood of Christ can enable me to resist sin. The work of Christ on the cross. That might be a weird thing to say, isn't it? You figure if you come to church, you're going to hear someone say the blood of Christ and you're not going to know what it means. Well, there you go, I just did it. The blood of Christ. What is the blood of Christ and how weird is that, talking about that? Is that a Halloween thing? I mean, what is going on? The blood of Christ is the work of Christ on the cross, that he died, his body was broken, and his blood was shed for sinners. The work of Christ on the cross in himself is a weapon to resist sin. And we use that to combat the temptation in our life. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 15 that we read last week, he said he disarmed sin on the cross. The battle that enables us to resist sin happened on the cross already. Let's go on to number three. Know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. How do we pursue godliness without missing the gospel? Here's a critical point. We know what it, the difference is between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Paul talks about this here as well as in, in Corinthians. If we want to change solely because you're sad of how others might think of you, then you don't understand what it means to have godly sorrow. Changing your actions to earn favor with other people is not godly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. Changing your actions because someone, to get someone to love you or like you is worldly sorrow. Changing your actions so that you don't get in trouble is worldly sorrow. And Paul says we need to know the difference. And here, dare I say this, changing your behavior so that you can avoid conflict at home is not godly sorrow. That might be very effective for a short season of time, but it does not change your heart and it will come back and you will have to fight that battle over and over again. Feeling that you need to change because when you sin, you feel bad about something and feel bad about what you did to another person. Now, how did I get this list? Because these are all things that I have felt from time to time. I have had this worldly sorrow at times and trying to resist sin and I sin and I say, you know, I'm really, I'm really bummed that I, did, that I did that and I really wish I didn't hurt people in my life. So it's a worldly sorrow. How do we know when we've had a real godly sorrow? I think it's when we start to imitate uh, King David. And, and, and this is what he says in 2 Samuel. When he was confronted with sleeping with the wife of another, woman, of another man and took that man and actually killed him in battle, had him killed so that he could have Bathsheba all to himself, got her pregnant, the baby died, his friend Nathan came to him and said, you're a sinner, and what did David say? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And you look at that, and I've read that, and I think, there's a lot of people you sinned against. Name them. Bathsheba, her husband, the baby who died. All of her friends, all of your friends, people have trusted in you. 
Come on, David, you have sinned against a lot of people. But what does he say? I've sinned against the Lord. Because he understands this is godly sorrow, knowing that our sin is an offense against God and God alone. And sure, it has an effect, a ripple effect in our lives, but if we don't start with understanding that our sin is an offense against God and a sin against God, then we, don't, we, we won't have that heart change. And this is what Paul says. He says, he says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. So godly sorrow, we know we have godly sorrow when we sin and we say, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want that in my life. I hate it because I hate when I, I sin like that. It makes me love Christ with such a superficial and weak and shallow love. That's when we know we really have godly sorrow. And that's when we know we have really, truly are on the path to repentance. And attacking that sin and putting it to death in our life. Worldly sorrow is really just spiritual immaturity. Here's a simple test. When you stumble and fall, when you sin, do you hide from the truth or do you embrace it and confront it and run towards it? Adam and Eve is a great example. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? Someone say it. They hid. God says, where are you? And he said, we were afraid, we heard you coming, we heard you walking in the garden, we were afraid of you and we hid. They were like little babies. They're just, they're, that's just immature, hiding from that. How many of you, in your, if you have a child, a young child, has done something wrong, disobeyed you, and come to you and said, Mommy, Daddy, I have wronged you and God alone, and I, I, want, to be ex- I want to be accountable to my actions, because I don't want to be like that anymore. No, little kids don't do that. They hide. They make excuses. You see them in the act of sin, and they will still tell you that they weren't there. That's immaturity. That's physical immaturity. Spiritual immaturity does the same thing. When we sin, we make excuses. It was a, it was a moment of passion. We love each other. They deserved it. We make excuses like that. Or we hide. And we say, sin? What sin? I didn't sin. We do all kinds of things. And that's spiritual immaturity. Spiritual maturity says this, what is the character of God and how can I imitate him so I can love him, enjoy him, and glorify him in all that I do? Who is he? What is he like? How can I, get, how can I enjoy all that he has to offer? That's spiritual maturity. Again, look at what Paul says. I'm disobedient. I hate the choices that I'm making. I hate that I don't do what I, exactly what's good for me. Who will save me? And then he says, Jesus Christ, he's my answer. I'm going to him. That's spiritual, spiritual maturity. I've sinned. I know it. There's nothing else I can do. There's no hope. Therefore, I'm going to the one thing, one person who can help me. I'm going to Jesus. And lastly, let's look at number four. Pursuing godliness needs to be violent. Paul says in verse five, put to death what is earthly in you. Literally, put to death, literally murder it. Literally, be a rogue chimpanzee and just go ape on it. <laughs> Murder it. If you are flirting with sin, you do not hate your sin. You love it. You know why you love it? 
and me too. You know why I love sin when I'm sinning? Because I don't, and, and I don't want to kill it because you want it there when you need it. When you're lonely, when you're tired, when you're sad, when you're depressed. Because if your sin isn't there, then you're forced to either be completely alone or to go to Christ. And those are two very uncomfortable things to do. I won't kill it. I might just take a kneecap out. And so at least it'll crawl back to me when I need it the most. If I put to death lust and sexual immorality in my life, what am I going to do when I'm really lonely and having a hard time? If it's not there for me to comfort me, to satisfy me, what else is going to be? If my temper is put to death, when someone wrongs me, what am I going to do? Those are good questions, right? It's designed to put us face-to-face with Christ, our only hope. There are a list of ten vices in this, in this chapter. Ten behaviors that we are to put to death. Half of them deal with one thing. Half of them deal with some nuance, some behavior of sexual immaturity. Sexual, I'm sorry, sexual impurity. And so he spends 50% on bringing that out. And so I want to say this. I don't want to, get, I won't want to fog over it. Sex is God's idea. <laughs> it is a good thing. God invented sex in Genesis 1. He told Adam and Eve, he said, I'm bringing you two together. Be fruitful and multiply. And that happened in chapter 1. And it took them two chapters to give them clothes. Think about it. <laughs> sex is good. I'm not going to give you clothes for a while. And it was a beautiful thing. God said, it's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. And yet, it is half of the things that were, that were tearing apart this young church in Colossae that Paul said, five of these things, half of these things are dealing with some form of, of, of impurity in your sexual relations. He, God hates any measure of sexual act that is outside the bounds of marriage. And we are to put it to death. To murder sin. The legalist doesn't want to put it to death because we want it there when we need it. When you're hurt, when you're tired, when you're lonely. Look at verse 6. Paul says, on, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God hates sin with a murderous passion. And so should we, because we should imitate God. Why does God hate sin? Because he understands that sin is a lion seeking to devour and destroy anything in its path. I'm not surprised a lot, and here's one thing in particular that I'm never surprised by. On the news, when I see something... Somebody who has an exotic pet that killed them or ate them. I'm never surprised. That's what they're designed to do. That's what they're good at. That's their nature. And sin is the same way. It says that sin is like a lion. It was in the news a couple weeks ago, you know, that gaming reserve in Ohio. I'm sure you heard about it. Where these 50, 60 exotic animals, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and cougars and and all these exotic animals, right? And they had Jack Hanna working with the police officers. Jack Hanna, you know, Jack Hanna's adventure, animal adventure. This animal expert. And what does he tell the police officers? Shoot and kill. 
And then they showed a picture of this just massacre. Of, so you have the, the person's property with the building where all the animals were housed. Ten feet from the door, you see a mound of, of 40, 50 animals slaughtered. And the cops are sitting there just at the door picking them off one by one. And I saw that, and I'm like, how sad. What a tragedy. And, and Jack Hanna's like, you want a tragedy? Then let them do what they were designed to do, and then you'll know a tragedy. They're not compassionate. They see a human. They're gonna, it's going to be bad. It is a worse scene to see what they're capable of doing than seeing pictures go around the news of these cops just picking off animals right at the door. That's what Paul says we need to do to sin. Sin is capable of destroying your relationship with God. It is capable of destroying the things that you love the most. You don't want to know what sin is like when it, 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 it exercises its nature to kill, to devour, and to rob you of your joy. And so Paul says, put it to death, be violent with it, do not hesitate, do not tame it, do not, oh, they've never done this before. That's what everybody says until something's ripping off your face. It just seems so nice. It's designed to kill you, and will always do that if it has opportunity. And sin will do the same thing. You know, I know a lot of people struggle with this sin, but for me, it's just, I've got it under control. You're foolish. You don't know what it's designed to do. Paul says, get rid of it. Kill it. We need to, be, we need to know what it's capable of doing. You are not exempt of, from the worst of what sin can do. You're special. You, you know, I love you, but you're not special in the sense that sin is, will corrupt you less or to a less effect than it will other people. Okay, now I'm angry. Okay, a little out of control. God hates sin without bias to any measure of quantity of that sin. I just do it a little. God says, I want to kill it. I'm just angry a little. God says, I want to kill it. I just do that once a week. God says, I don't care. I want to kill it. I want to rid it from your life. There's a reason that you and I are sinning the way that we do. And it's not because of behavior, it's because of a heart issue. We deceive ourselves to thinking that our external actions are very separate from our heart actions. From an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From an overflow of the heart, your actions come about. The things that you do, the sins that you are wrestling with, don't be deceived. They are because of a heart issue. And Christ wants to deal with that heart issue. If you have lust issues, you really have a heart issue. If you have temper issues, you really have a heart issue. If you have slander issues, where you just love talking bad things about other people, you really have a heart issue. In order to pursue godliness without missing the gospel, we need to know where sin really lies. And the word that Paul uses is idolatry. He says these things are idols because we love them, they bring us comfort, and we serve them, and they have a wrong priority in our life. They occupy the space that Christ should occupy, and we put these things as a higher priority. We love them, we serve them, we idolize them. Idols are a heart issue. That's what Paul's saying. And here's the wonderful truth that ties it all together. Whatever your struggle is, whatever your heart need is, you will find those two things satisfied in the love and work of Christ. He says, you were called to peace. The love of Christ to experience a peace that sin cannot provide. Sin promises something to you that it will never be able to capitalize on. It will never be able to fulfill. 
And Jesus says, the things that you desire most, I am the only one that can fulfill. He says, I give you peace. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Here's what I love. He says, to which indeed you were called in one body. You and I are called to experience the peace of Christ. And these sins and others are designed to take that peace away. And so he says, come to me. I can bear that burden. Acceptance. Look at verse 11. It says, There is no Greek, no Jew, no uncircumcised, no slave, no free. Christ is all and in all. It doesn't matter. Here's an encouragement. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're coming from, what you look like, what you smell like, what you act like. It doesn't matter. Some would say you may have heard the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul is saying here, all Christ is in all and all is Christ. And that doesn't mean Christ is in everything like Christ is in this pew and Christ is in the carpet and Christ is in the scaffolding. No, it's not pantheism. Christ is all. All things find their fulfillment in Christ. That's what that means. By the grace of God in Christ, we don't have to clean up ourselves to come and find acceptance with Him. We come and find acceptance with Him and He cleans us up and He makes us godly and lovely people. There's a beautiful picture of this heavenly reality that we experience in the present. Think about it. Think about fellowship. Think about enjoyment of other people and, about, and friends and acceptance and seated at the right hand of the Father. All these things that Paul is describing, we think about those are the things that are going to happen in heaven. Accepted. Experiencing God's peace. Being perfected and without blemish. Being peaceful. Having friendship. He says, don't lie, to, don't lie to each other because that ruins your community. And so we see this picture of wonderful community where no one is boasting over another person, but we all find our acceptance in Christ and there's no favoritism. That sounds like heaven. And what Paul is saying, what you desire in heaven is experienced in the present. We need to live as if it can be experienced in the present. We don't change our behavior so that we can experience those things. We live that way. We experience those things because of who we are in Christ already. This is the language of what things will be like forever with Christ. He invites us to that. We get to have a taste of it now. I exhort you to pursue that, to pursue godliness. You will not hear here, you will not hear at Holy Cross Church that if you are a good person, God will love you or you will go to heaven. And you will also hear that in spite of those things, God loves you. And you will also hear, therefore, because of that love, we need to go out and we need to hunt down the sin in our life and we need to use the weapons of Christ that he has given us and we need to put it to death for his glory and our enjoyment. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.